Blog Talk Radio. to She Said, She Said. This is Blog Talk Radio's only program of rock and roll comparisons and contrasts. I am Lena Stagg, the culinary chef and author of the Recipe Records series, a series of four rock and roll cookbooks that mix and blend rock history, facts, trivia, and photos with delicious and easy-to-prepare recipes themed for music genres and bands. And here with your daily dose of Southern accent, I'm Jude Sutherland (laughs) Kessler, author of the John Lennon series. That's a nine-volume expanded biography that chronicles the life of John and, of course, his mates, the Beatles, in a researched historical narrative format. So today, Lena and I will be calling upon our perspective areas of expertise, and we're going to compare and contrast the subject of Lena's most recent book, The Rolling Stones, with the subject of my books, The Beatles. That's right. And this is the fourth time that we are debating the topic. In our first round, we compared the accomplishments of those wonderful Beatles and those dirty stones. <laughs> and then in debate number two, we contrasted their childhoods, and we talked about what their backgrounds either brought to the table to help them or put in the way of their success. And in our last toe-to-toe round, we compared the motivations of the Beatles and the Stones to become rockers. We examined different events that happened in their lives and made them yearn to leave their mark in the music world. And by the way, If you missed these shows and want to go back and listen to any or all of them, go to Blog Talk Radio, and in the search box, put Lena Stagg, She Said, She Said, and you will see all of those episodes in the archives. Speaking of the archives, we know that our show today will run past our 30-minute mark on Blog Talk Radio, so if you will give us about 15 minutes once the program ends, and then you go to those archives, the She Said, She Said archives. This is going to be um, Rolling Stones versus Beatles debate number four, and if you will look it up in archives, you'll be able to hear the end of the show. And today, we're once again going to look at those two supergroups, the Beatles and the Stones, in an effort to answer that never-ending, burning question, who (laughs) really was and is and ever shall be the greatest rock and roll band of all time. Now, on this fourth go-round, we are going to look at the influences of these two bands, what they glean from the people around them, their managers, their friends, producers, and their associates. And we're going to look objectively at how much they depended on those who were surrounding them, and we're going to evaluate how much was 
their influence and theirs alone and how much they depended upon others for their success. Your old English teacher here will tell you that British poet Alfred Lord Tennyson once wrote this beautiful line, I am a part of all I have met. And look for all of us, and especially for the Beatles and the Stones. That quote is so true. Um, Both bands' lives were touched by so many gifted, talented, influential people. And those people led them down paths that took them to greatness. And it's those immense influences, those friends and lovers, some are dead, some are living, in their lives, those are the people that we're going to lift up to you today. We're going to begin by looking first at two of the biggest influences on the Rolling Stones. First, there's Mick Jagger's schoolmate, Dick Taylor. And Dick Taylor was an early influence in the band. He played bass. I always lose my voice about this time in the show. I never talk this much, (laughs) apparently, dude. That's because the Beatles are supposed to win, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting cursed. He so Dick was he he was a bass player and he and Mick were in a band called Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. And Keith Richards joined the group shortly thereafter and once they united their early blues sound gelled. The three of them formed the core of what became the Rolling Stones. Another mate of the boys, a really important mate, was Ian Stewart. Ian was born in Scotland, and he was a little older than the the other fellows in the band, and he was the co-founder of the Rolling Stones. That's Rolling without the G, which was an early iteration of what became finally the Rolling Stones. Stuart played piano, and Keith said he didn't think the Stones could have meshed without Ian Stewart pulling it all together. Stewart rented the band's first rehearsal rooms. He was savvy in the music world, and he was enthusiastic. Stewart had a day job, unlike the other guys, <laughs> working at a chemical company, and he had a prized office phone. And that phone became the headquarters for the Rolling Stones. He booked their gigs from there. He called people to try and promote them. He was a tremendous um, part of the formation of this band. But Ian's, I think Ian's greatest influence on the band was his piano. He was he had was was tremendously talented as the pianist for the band in in the early years. But when Andrew Luke Oldman, their manager, came around. He thought that Ian was too tall and that his jaw was too square. <laughs> so he thought Ian should go. And Ian was hurt at first, I've read, but then he said, okay, I'll just stay in the background and be the road manager. And he did so, and he also played piano on many recordings until 1985. He was adored and beloved by all of them. His influence on the Stones was so profound that Ian was posthumously 
inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the rest of the band in 1989. I'm going to play a song for you that is all Ian Stewart rockabilly piano, and it's a great, great display of his talent. It might not be such a great display of Mick, but you be the judge. Like he had an accent like me, kind of laying on. Sounded just like me. Go, Mick. <laughs> well, the Beatles, too, were really heavily influenced by one of their friends, and actually, he was John's best friend. You guys were wondering how long it would take me to bring this all around to John <laughs> Lennon, right? <laughs> well, it was Stu, uh, John's friend, Stu Sutcliffe. Stu was the Beatles' first bass player, and he was a very gifted artist. In fact, he was a prodigy and was admitted to Liverpool College of Art when he was only 16 years old as a college student. Now, of course, both John and Stu were students at Liverpool College of Art. And during their days together, Stu was constantly reminding John that more than anything else, John was an artist first. And that music was John's medium just the way that oil painting was Stu's medium. He kept telling John that as an artist, he was to view his band differently from any other band, that they were to dress uniquely and separate themselves from the other bands to look artistic. Stu, in February of 1962, January and February, came to Liverpool from Germany wearing a tight, short jacket, pocketless suit that Paul laughed at. But Brian Epstein loved the suit and had Bino Dorn copy it for all of the Beatles. And, of course, it's the famous Beatles suit that they wear, straight from the artist Stu Sutcliffe. Stu told John that the band needed to wear their hair differently from anyone else, not to mimic a Buddy Holly or an Elvis to be different. And in fact, his fiancée, Astrid Kirscher, suggested to John that they wear the bowl cut she had given to her former boyfriend, Klaus Vorman. And Stu also emphasized to John that it was crucial that the band create art with their music. So everything about the record had to be artistic. The cover of the LP needed to be artistic. Everything that they did needed to be special. That attitude raised the game of the Beatles from bad bar boys to creators of something very unique, something that wasn't just for fun but would rival Picasso, Shakespeare, Schubert, and as they say in Liverpool, Van Gogh. In other words, what he wanted John to deliver was art. And even after Stu's tragic death from a brain hemorrhage in April of 62, John held his soulmate close to his heart. Throughout his life, 
John strove to lift his band to Stu's standards, and in his life, Stu was ever and always John's role model. There are places I remember John really knows how to put it, doesn't he? So friends have definitely played a role in both bands. We don't have time to list all of those who left their image imprinted on these bands, but there were many. And just as powerful in their scope of influence were the managers of the Beatles and the Stones. For the Stones, there was even a tie-in between the managers of of these bands. Andrew Lug Oldman, the Stones manager, began his career working for none other than Beatles manager Brian Epstein. He was doing various PR duties. He was only 19, but he was sharp, and he was watching carefully at all that was happening to the Beatles and what potential he thought there might be for the Stones. Eventually, Oldham broke from Epstein and became the Stones' manager. He convinced them that he had all of the necessary connections and experience and that he would get them a contract with DECA Records. Knowing full well that the DECA DECA executives were completely crushed because they had denied the Beatles a contract, so Oldham had it in his mind that DECA would be very delighted to sign the Stones And, of course, they were. And, in fact, Oldham negotiated a contract that was far better than the Beatles had with EMI. The Stones were to receive 5% of their record sales compared to 1% that the Beatles had at EMI. Oldham, on the advice of Phil Spector, wisely negotiated that he or the band would pay for studio time. This is really a critical thing that happened at that moment. So the record company, if they paid for the time, if if they didn't charge the artist for the time, then the record company owned that material. So Phil Spector gave that tip to Oldham to never let the band allow the the studio to pay for the time. So this was virtually an unheard of thing in England, and it resulted in the Stones owning the copyright for all of their material, which turned out to be a huge, huge deal. For a couple of minutes, Oldham put the Stones into the suits and mocked the Beatles style, but he recognized that the hooligan image that we have come to know would be welcome in the climate of the 60s. And he gave the boys the very image that the Beatles had owned in their early years in Hamburg. Sorry, Mr. Lennon. 
he was very annoyed at um, the Stones hijacking his image, and he actually even said that um, very thing, that the Stones hijacked the Beatles' original image, which apparently I guess I could agree. But Oldham also instructed Keith. He, he, he had these funny little quirky things he had them do, and he had Keith Richards drop the S from Richards. He thought that it sounded more pop, if just to be Keith Richard. And he added the G to the Roland designation. He didn't think that Roland Stones sounded serious enough. So they became the Rolling Stones. Oldham had also told Bill Wyman, who was 26 at the time, to pretend that he was 21, young, and cool, and he persuaded the band to loosen up their performances. He also recognized Jagger's electric appeal, and he insisted that he share the limelight with Keith. But probably the most important influence that Oldham took with the Rolling Stones was to force Mick and Keith to write their own material. He knew that there was no way the band could compete, could compete with the Beatles if they didn't have original material, and he was so right. And Mick and Keith delivered with songs like Jumpin' Jack Flash, Wild Horses, and Gimme Shelter. And here is the song that, with Oldham's assistance, was given to the Stones by none other than John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Jones was asked who was most helpful since you turned professional. He answered, Andrew Oldham, of course. But I'll never forget the early words of praise from the Beatles. Oldham was keen and clever when he decided to promote the Stones as the antithesis of the Beatles, and Oldham perpetuated the belief that you were for the Beatles and or you were for the Stones. If you were for the Beatles, it meant that you want to hold my hand. But if you loved the Stones, you wanted to spend the night together. So Oldham <laughs> Stones were ready to burn down your town. Well, I like that endorsement from Brian Jones for the Beatles. Go, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles were also influenced very heavily by two managers. One gets most of the credit, but there were two men who influenced the Beatles and really directed their fate, and they couldn't have been less alike. One of them taught the Beatles to rock. And the other one taught them to roll with the demands of the entertainment world, its rigorous demands. Well, first, there's the rocker, energetic, raucous, wild Alan Williams. Uh, most of you probably met Alan. If you've ever been to Liverpool prior to about a year and a half ago when Alan passed away, I know you met him. He was an effervescent, 
outspoken, never-say-die Welshman who had been born and reared in Liverpool. He was an entrepreneur. He owned lots of entertainment venues, but the one that most affected the Beatles was the Jacaranda Coffee Bar in Liverpool. And he had huge connections in in the entertainment world throughout the U.K. Through Alan's connections, the boys got their very first major gig in Hamburg, Germany. And what Alan and those Hamburg days taught the Beatles was to Mac Shaw, to put on a show. Look, Alan did several important things for the Beatles. I mean, in the earliest of days, he gave them a place to rehearse in the basement of the Jacaranda. If they agreed to clean the loo, the bathroom in the Jacaranda, he let them rehearse there, even though they were terrible. He gave them opportunities to try out for talent shows. He got them tickets to sit in and listen to talent shows and to learn. And he gave them the chance to try out for a tour possibility to Scotland with Johnny Gentle through London impresario Larry Parnes. And, of course, they did end up going to Scotland with Johnny Gentle. But most important of all was this gig in Hamburg. Sure, Alan got them a gig in Hamburg in one of the seediest, filthiest, most Mm -hmm. disgusting joints in town. And if you think that the Kaiser Keller and the Indra were bad, Mm -hmm. you should have seen the living conditions at the Bambi Kino. Disgusting. But... That stint overseas turned the Beatles from ingenue little boys into hardened rockers. (laughs) They learned to vamp. They learned to scream and shout and slide across the stage, waggle their heads and other parts of their anatomy, and (laughs) to seduce the audience. They learned to max shout to make a show, and that upped their game so much that when they came back to Liverpool at the end of December – No one recognized them. They thought they were a German band, and that was good. In fact, take a listen to the way they sounded. While I fan myself, (laughs) I'm pretty (laughs) left, as they used to say back in the 80s. Look, after the Hamburg days, Alan sort of faded into the background. He and the boys had a falling out over money. Alan got sick and tired of what he called those pushy scousers. And pretty much in 1962, he, he let the boys go, and they were at loose ends. In the autumn of 1961, just as the year is closing and they're going to move into 62 without a manager at all, a 27-year-old manager of the North End Music Stores in Whitechapel Road in Liverpool walks to the Cavern Club not to talk to the Beatles about managing them or having anything to do with their career. He wants to know the whereabouts of a record for his music store that the Beatles recorded with Tony Sheridan in Germany. But after sitting in the back of the darkened cavern club and watching those mad lads in their leathers on the cavern stage, this young 27-year-old manager feels compelled to see more. He doesn't stay just for their first set. He stays for the second set. And Brian Epstein, who becomes Epstein when they go to America, becomes 
infatuated. After the show, he drifts back to the band room and he invites the Beatles to his office on the 10th of December, 1961, where he is going to offer them a loose managerial agreement. And ladies and gentlemen, that changed everything. Because doing the exact opposite of Andrew Luke Oldham, Brian Epstein set out to make John, Paul, George, and Ringo palatable for the mothers and fathers of America. He doesn't have his eye on the UK. He's looking to be bigger than Elvis. And to be bigger than Elvis, he knew that the boys would have to be polite. They'd have to be funny. Their their comedy served them so well with the press. They'd have to be well-coiffed, well-dressed, well-behaved, and likable. And this he insisted on with an iron thumb on the Beatles and on all of the groups that were in his stable. He told the Beatles they could no longer throw sandwiches at their audiences. They couldn't swear at the audiences. They couldn't stop their songs in midstream and start another song whenever they wanted to. They had to have a playlist. They had to bow at the end of every song. They had to conduct themselves as gentlemen. And although John Lennon absolutely despised this new image, thought he was selling out in order to succeed, he did it because he craved the toppermost of the poppermost. And through Brian's rules, that he got. Absolutely. And I apologize to Brian. I say it Epstein and Epstein. I say it any which way. Well, you're right. It is, it is Epstein <laughs> until they leave for America. And then he calls Bob Wooler in and says, in America they say Epstein and I'm going to change it. So it was both. Hmm. That's cute. That's that's very interesting. I did not know that. Well, I think we've clearly proven that the managers for both bands were integral in pushing the Stones and the Beatles to success. There's no doubt about it. But for the Stones, it took a savvy promoter to bring them to acclaim, and that promoter was Giorgio Gomelsky. He was a Soviet-born, Swiss-educated London transplant who was active in London's local jazz club scene. He was really an integral part in bringing raw R&B to London, and he was very popular. Uh, his club was called the Crawdaddy Club. Who wouldn't just love that? But Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones had been bugging Giorgio <clears throat> for months to listen to this band. And finally, Gomelski took in a Stones show, and he thought they were good. He thought they were okay, and he told Jones that he didn't have space for them to perform. However, if one of the bands didn't show up, then the Stones could have the slot. And as fate would have it, the very next week it happened, the scheduled band did not show up, so the Stones were in. So there was a little bit of luck in that. Gomelski was the manager, as I said, of the Crawdaddy Club, which was at the Station Hotel. And he had given the Rolling Stones their first residency, the place where the Beatles first found them performing and where they started to form a close friendship. Gomelski had the vision for the entertainment industry, and he recognized that the vitality of the rhythm and blues genre 
depended on attracting new young fans. And Gomelski realized that attracting these young fans depended on involving young musicians, thus making the Stones very necessary for the growth of his club and for the genre. Their role was vital to this emerging scene. They really were, um, should be credited with, with bringing this genre to London. I'm going to play an excellent more, it was a, a later R&B song that the Stones produced. They used their R&B background that they had been perfecting while at the Crawdaddy Club. This happens to be my most favorite Rolling Stones song, Monkey Man. only got about two minutes and we're going to be losing you so if you hear us sign off don't forget to hear the end of the show in the she said she said archives Beatles versus stones number four so for the stones it was a savvy promoter who was needed to bring them to fame but for the Beatles the main ingredient that they really needed was a brilliant producer, and that, of course, was the man that so many people refer to as the fifth Beatle, their producer at EMI, George Martin. George Martin was not a rock and roller. In fact, he was a classically trained musician from the Guildhall School, and that diverse background definitely upped the Beatles' game by helping them think outside the rock and roll box and introducing them to instruments that they never would have incorporated into rock and roll, the clavichord, the French horn, the trumpet, tin whistle, and so forth, suggesting really unique instruments and clever arrangements of their songs. For example, one Martin innovation is that in the song From Me to You, the famous intro that we hear the boys singing was originally played on George Harrison's lead guitar. But Martin said, no, 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 no. We're not going to play it on guitar. I want you to sing the intro to the song. And if you listen, you'll hear them doing just that. George Martin also went to John when John was working diligently on coming up with a number one. Since Love Me Do had done well, John was determined to have the first number one, and he was working on Please Please Me. He played it for George Martin, and George, with his gifted ears, said, John, I think you need to to beef it up, to make it a little bit faster, to vamp it up a bit. Even though it's a love song, speed it up. And, of course, John did, and the song did go to number one. Now, as the Beatles moved from stage performers in 66, 67 to strictly studio musicians, more and more George Martin became important to them. 
And when John wanted his voice to sound like a guru on a hill far away, George Martin was the one that could achieve that sound for him. But you have to remember that it was John's idea to sound like a guru on a hill far away. (laughs) He was the conceiving artist, and Martin was the expert who took the artist's vision and brought it to life. And also, the thing that people forget, I mean, George Martin is a genius. There's no doubt about it. He was perfect for them. But I think that people forget that often the Beatles kept Martin's ideas in check. For example, when the Beatles come to him ready to make their very first record, Martin almost puts his foot down, insisting that they record a Tin Pan Alley ditty Mm -hmm. called How Do You Do It? Well, over lunch, John and the others rebelled. I mean, we can't go back to Liverpool after having sung a song like that. They'll laugh us out of town. Instead, we want to sing a song that we've written, Love Me Do. Well, Martin was flabbergasted that these young, inexperienced greenhorns from Liverpool think that a song that they would write would be better for them than a Tin Pan Alley song that's crafted by experienced musicians. But he lets them have their way, and of course, the band that emerges from Love Me Do is a vastly different band than the band that would have emerged from How Do You Do It. I don't think that that band would have held a candle to the band that John Lennon envisioned and fought for. So the partnership between George Martin and the Beatles was full of give and take. Martin is no doubt gifted, but we have to keep in mind that the people who imagined things that no one had ever heard of before and then ask Martin to help bring it to life that was the Beatles. Mm. Very true. And what would these two bands have been without the influences we've talked about today? Would they still have achieved unimaginable success and reached the toppermost of the poppermost? In the case of the Rolling Stones, there is no doubt in my mind that the Stones were created and shaped with the assistance of Ian Stewart, Andrew Luke Oldman, and Giorgio Gomelski. These were characters that helped set Mick, Keith, Charlie, Brian, and Bill on the track to creating their sound and um, forming their future as a band. But Mick and Keith and Charlie, in my opinion, are to be credited with getting the band to where they are today. Without their drive, determination, stamina, talent, there's no way the band would have enjoyed 55 years of success without giving the credit to those early band members. Yeah, and as for the Beatles, I mean, were they merely products of their handlers, producers, and friends? Well, It's a complicated thing. I wholeheartedly agree with Liverpool author David Bedford, who wrote the book The Fab 104. Um, You know, no man, as John Donne said, is an island. No man, no woman is an island. And it took not just the Fab Four, but 104 and even more to create the legend Mm -hmm. that is the Beatles. I mean, it took Cynthia Lennon. Without her, things would have been completely different. Had she made John become a husband and take a steady job and not do what he did, things would have changed. The band would have been different without Mal Evans, without Neil Aspinall, without Tony Barrow, their publicist, without Chaz Newby, their first bass player, without 
uh, or second, without Pete Best, mm-hmm. without you go back as early as Colin Hanton, one of their earliest drummers. Each one of those people made a difference in the career of the Beatles, but without a doubt, I think that the unique genius of John, Paul, George, and Ringo would have manifested itself regardless. They may not have looked the way that the Beatles look today. They may not have sounded the way that the Beatles sound today. They might have been a different band altogether now, packaged differently, delivered differently, but the Beatles would have come together fabulously, somehow, nevertheless. Very true. On our very last show in this series of the Beatles versus the Stones, In January, we're going to put these two bands to the final test of greatness. We're going to play their music and let the music speak for itself. And then we're going to deliver our closing arguments (laughs) in the case of who is the greatest rock and roll band of all time. And we're going to leave the decision with you. So until that last debate coming up in January, we hope that you'll take some time over the holidays to visit our websites and sign up for our newsletters, which come out once a month. They're full of info. They have discounts for our books. And you can find me, as always, at johnlennonseries.com. And you can locate me at lanastag.com. Until then, we wish you guys a Merry Christmas and all the very best in the new year. May you have food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. Ta-ra and shine on. (laughs) 